Betty Ford is the wife of our 38th president, Gerald Ford. On a TV special that aired about her life, it documented a family meeting with some tense moments. At one point, Betty's son told her, Mom, you're destroying yourself and your family. You're killing yourself. You're a drunk and you're an addict. People rarely respond well when you call them out on the carpet like that. So, of course, Mrs. Ford was beside herself with frustration. She told her son, How can you say those words to me? I'm your mother. Her son responded that he could say those things because they were true. Now, that conversation was a catalyst in Mrs. Ford's life and in her dealing with her addictions. She later on went to found and to lead the Betty Ford Center for Substance Abuse. See, oftentimes, when our hearts have been so hard, God has to get in His vehicle called confrontation and drive His point home. How we respond to confrontation can move us from sin to salvation, or from immaturity to maturity, or from hard-heartedness to Christ-likeness. And that's what we're going to talk about today on this episode of By the Verse. Thank you so much for joining me today on this podcast. This isn't a flashy podcast. It's very basic. We just walk through the Word of God chunk by chunk. We've been in the book of Judges, and last week we talked about Abimelech and the great disaster he was for the people of God. But it really was the fallout of some of the decisions his father had made before him. Now, in the aftermath of Abimelech, there's still a lot of cleanup that needs to happen. And that's what we're going to begin to see, at least in the beginning of chapter 10. So let's start it out at chapter 10, verse 1. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. So the Abimelech saga, really, it broke the normal cycle that we have expected to see up to this point in the book. So it's at chapter 10 that we begin to get back into this rhythm of God raising up judges, because Abimelech was not a judge. He was uh, just a crazy leader that popped up, and it was a wild moment that they had to deal with. So here uh, we have... This new judge, his name is Tola, and it says he arose to save Israel. Now, with only a few verses devoted to his life and his exploits, uh, we know very little uh, about him. There's really only two significant things that stand out. First, it says he arose to save Israel, and this language is actually not used of all the judges. It's only used of three other judges, and that's Othniel, Shamgar, and Deborah. Now, that puts him in pretty good company. Uh, The other thing to know about him is that of all the judges, he is the only one that has a genealogy that goes back three generations. Of course, the genealogies were very important to the Jews. This may have been a way of showing his high social status. His family clans are also mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1. 
Uh, He was a man of Issachar, which was a northern tribe, yet he lived more in the central part of the country in Ephraim. We're not given any clues as to what he saved Israel from, but some commentators suggest that perhaps he just provided stable leadership and filled the vacuum left behind after the death of Gideon and the rise and subsequent demise of Abimelech. So nowhere uh, do we see him saving uh, Israel from like a specific enemy. So it could be that he just saved Israel from itself. Now, this is a good time to point out that uh, I think we have an inclination. I think we all do. Uh, we, we have this tendency to value people whose exploits are written about extensively over people who may not get quite as much cover space uh, in the Bible. But if you were to ask me, would you rather be King David or would you rather be Enoch? Honestly, I'm going with Enoch. We don't really know a whole lot about Enoch, but the fact that he walked with God and then bam, he's just gone off the earth and he's with God, I'll take that story way over all of the crazy things uh, that David went through and experienced. I'm glad that David's stories are recorded there for us because we can identify with them, but I would take Enoch's story uh, over his any day. So this Tola guy, we know very little about him or who he saved Israel from, and it could just be that he was God's person for that time to be a source of stable, quiet leadership. And maybe he had to fight a few minor battles here and there, but nothing on the scale of the oppressions that the people had seen uh, up to this point. But don't undervalue someone like this who can fill the leadership vacuum and provide stability and good leadership for a long time. Okay, well, let's read on in verse 3. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called havath Jair to this day which are in the land of Gilead. And Jared died and was buried in Kaman. Here again, uh, we have another person uh, of whom not much is said. Uh, But he did judge Israel for a lengthy amount of time. Uh, He was a Gileadite, which means that he was from a region known as Gilead, uh, which actually spans more than one tribal territory. It's going to span the good portion of the territory of Gad and East Manasseh. Uh, So when you think of Gilead in the Bible, sometimes we think of a specific city or specific location. It's actually more of a region than a specific location, much like we would uh, call the four corners, you know, which actually is four corners of four states. Or uh, we would refer to New England, even though New England encompasses uh, several northeastern States. Okay, so it's a region, not a specific uh, city. One unique thing about him is his financial prestige. You know, we had a he had a lot of sons. Okay, he didn't have as many sons as Gideon had, but Gideon's sons didn't ride on seventy donkeys. Okay, the donkey is like the Tesla of the day, and it would have spoken of Jer's kind of royalty, our privilege, our prestige, 
uh, in the culture, and each one of these sons is said to have a city, probably more of a, a village. The term Havath Jer just means settlements of Jer. And it could be that the writer specifically points out his sons riding donkeys and them having control of 30 cities as a way to show maybe a little bit something negative about his leadership, which is that he may have been preoccupied with power and control. Here's the thing, though. You'd be surprised to know just how many pastors of large churches are the kind of people that, honestly, you wouldn't want to work for. Sometimes people who achieve great things are so driven that they leave a trail of bodies in their wake. You know, it doesn't mean that God doesn't use them. Of course, He uses them, and they have great giftedness, and they are called to do many of the great exploits that maybe they go on to do. It's just that sometimes building the kingdom of God and building the kingdom of, well, insert your own name, can be very difficult to untangle. Well, let's read on starting at verse 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that Israel was severely distressed. Now, uh, we've talked before about the Baals and the Asherah, so I'm not going to get into that uh, again here, but they're really just local versions of the same God. But also here, there are national gods uh, that are highlighted. When he's highlighting the gods of each one of these uh, people groups that uh, the people of God would have encountered in and along the promised land and, and on their journey to the promised land, uh, he highlights them. So he includes the Baals and the Asherahs, but then he names all of these other people. And when you add it up, it, it refers to about seven gods. Now, this is significant because the writer is not only pointing out seven gods, but up to this point, there have been exactly seven oppressions and there have been exactly seven judges. So we're dealing with seven, seven, seven. Now, I don't play uh, slot machines or anything like that, but I think that if you hit seven, 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 that's probably a jackpot. That's exactly what this is. It shows the complete nature of, of how far people have come from God, how, how far they've gone away from God, how thoroughly also that God has continued uh, to reach out to them. It's kind of like filling up a glass. You can have more and more and more in that glass until you get to the top, and eventually, well, it's going to spill over because the glass is complete. The glass is full. 
And so the people of God are going to experience a spillover moment in the next few verses, but not until after God has turned them over to be crushed and oppressed by the people whose gods they worship. So it is said here uh, that they worship the gods of the Philistines and the Ammonites, and yet God gives those people power over uh, his own people to conquer them. And the principle here is pretty simple. Whatever you worship has control over you. If you worship money, you'll never have enough. You'll keep chasing it. And any little financial thing that happens along the way, it will stress you out to the max. If you worship your family, then whatever goes on with the family, whatever goes on with the kids, it will rob you of joy and peace and happiness because that is what you have made your God. That is the thing about idols. Idols promise freedom, but they ultimately lead to slavery. So what we see here is that the tribes of Israel that occupy the west okay, and the east side of the Dead Sea are the ones that are involved in this story. We're not really involving uh, the northernmost tribes. So if you go to the land of Gilead, which is going to be Gad and East Manasseh, that's going to be uh, the northeastern side of the Dead Sea. And then on the other side, uh, when you cross the Jordan and come back down the Dead Sea, on the west side, you're going to be dealing with Benjamin and, sorry, with Ephraim first, then Benjamin, and then Judah. Now, uh, the next chapter is going to show us uh, who this next judge is going to be, and there's going to be a battle and all of that, but it's really not going to deal with the Philistines so much. Uh, it, it's actually going to deal primarily with the Ammonite oppression, and that's because we're not really going to deal with the Philistine oppression until we get to the story of Samson, which happens in chapter 12. Okay, so chapter 11 God's going to raise up a leader, and he's going to deal with the Ammonite oppression, but it's not until the next chapter in chapter 12 that we get to uh, God raising up Samson and him dealing with the Philistines. And so that is why a lot of people think that uh, the the leader, the judge that's going to come about, Jetheth, in chapter 12, sorry, chapter 11, and Samson in chapter 12 are actually somewhat contemporaries that their stories are kind of happening and evolving um, at the same time. At least there's some, some overlap there, because what we're going to see later is that the oppression of the Philistines actually was much longer um, than this oppression here. Okay, so, so these two guys are contemporaries, but just know that these stories are dealing with the tribes that live on either side of the Dead Sea. Let's hop back in at verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. 
Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. These verses are not unlike what we've already seen in the book uh, two other times up to this point. If you go all the way back to chapter 2, the angel of the Lord confronts the people uh, because of their sin and uses kind of some, some similar phraseology. Uh, but then you fast forward to chapter 6, and God sends an unnamed prophet who confronts the people again in much the same way. Okay, So here we are in chapter 10. This is the third time now that God ha- is confronting directly his people, and this time he's, he's doing it himself. It, it's not said that he's using any intermediary uh, to do this, and this one kind of has a little bit of a harsher tone. The people cry out to God, but God's response shows that perhaps they weren't willing to go far enough. Uh, maybe they were sorry for the consequences of their sin, but not sorry uh, for the sin itself. Perhaps it was a, an attempt to try to force God's hand to do something on their behalf without actually having a change of heart. So even though God's response to them is, you know, it's kind of a funny one. You know, he's basically saying, listen, you've been chasing after these other gods, now you're in trouble, go have them help you. I mean, it's kind of funny a little bit. Um, but what he's actually doing here is he's forcing them into an into a corner. I mean, they're going to have to make a decision here. And so they not only confess their sin, but the, it, it says they went a step further, that they, they actually put their confession to action. They followed it up with action. It wasn't just words. And it says they put away their foreign gods, uh, meaning that they stopped worshiping them. They removed them. And it says they they began to worship uh, the Lord, or they turned to the Lord. And and even then, immediately God didn't take away the oppression. Uh, That's very interesting to me, that upon the the, the repentance, there wasn't like this immediate reversal of the consequences of their sin, okay? But after they had begun to truly serve the Lord, and we don't know how long that was, Maybe that was a little bit of a test there. Okay, you've put away these foreign gods, and now you're serving me, but it's only been a day. You know, it's only been a week. It's only been a few months, right? Maybe sometimes getting down the road a bit where we can see some fruit of repentance um, is what we need to see to know whether this thing is, is real, okay? But at some point, uh, God got to a point where he was uh, ready to do something and things began to reach a boiling point in verse 17. So let's read it there. Then the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilgal, sorry, they encamped in Gilead and the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead said one to another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now, we don't know uh, exactly what set the Ammonites off, 
I mean, they, they already have these people under their oppression. So we don't know uh, what suddenly made them uh, desire to amass an even larger army or whatever and encamp against the people uh, at Gilead. But whatever it was, it brought the situation to a boiling point. Sometimes situations have to reach their greatest point of tension before a resolution can come. Now, that's not on God. It's actually on us. Uh, We often don't deal with things until it gets to a point where it's intolerable. It's about the worst we can imagine, or it's getting pretty close. So here, uh, their bad situation is trending worse. And it's at a point now where they have to begin uh, to find a leader. In fact, leadership is one of the primary themes in the book of Judges. The quality of leadership, or lack thereof, is illustrated to us over and over throughout the book. So this chapter leaves us hanging in the balance. You know, what type of leader are they going to get? You know, who are they going to turn to? Um, this situation is unresolved, and we don't get the resolution until the next chapter. So here's the takeaway from chapter 10. When you turn away from sin and to God, or... When as a believer, you finally break free from some area of hard-heartedness in your life, don't think the enemy will walk over and pat you on the back. Actually, you may find, much like these Israelites did, that even after you've repented and put your foreign gods away, the enemy, well, he's not going to be happy about it. You still have a fight to fight if you're going to live out your freedom. Well, that's all I have for you today on this episode of By the Verse. I'm so thankful that you've been walking with me through this, and we will hop into chapter 11 on our next episode of By the Verse. 